Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is John Owen, and he's the CEO and pastor of the Wayside Chapel in Sydney. For those not from Sydney and not familiar with Wayside Chapel, it is an iconic charity based in King's Cross and is dedicated to supporting those experiencing homelessness, addiction, and mental illness. John is proud of their continuing mission of creating a community where there is no us and them. In his role as CEO, he leads a team of 110 employees and 800 volunteers. From an early age, John and his wife have served some of the most disadvantaged people, firstly in Melbourne and then in Western Sydney. He is passionate about how the community can play a role in everyone having a better life. As you will hear, John cares deeply about the people he serves, his employees, his volunteers, and also his clients, and he's not afraid to take on big challenges. He was initially invited to work at Wayside as their head of people and culture, with a view of learning the ropes for six years, and then perhaps progressing to CEO. Due to the serious illness of the previous CEO, John was encouraged to progress to the new role after just a year and a half. Talk about stepping up. John has a great sense of humor and a real spirit of service. His story is inspiring, but he, like many caring CEOs, is very humble. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome John Owen to the Caring CEO. Welcome, John. Thanks, Graham. What does care in the workplace mean to you? I think the best way to begin to answer that question would be to explore for me what what care is and what better way to do that than to weave in some of the great philosophers <laughs> of our time. You know, I, I like a, a poem by Rumi and admittedly it, it's overused and overquoted and it's often got nothing to do with anything other than two people wanting to make love. Uh, but, um, you know, where it says, you know, there's a field somewhere out between ideas of right and wrong and I'll I'll meet you there where two people can have a, a human connection. And we also lean on the philosophy heavily and I also do personally as well of Martin Buber that who says that no one's a problem to be solved, they're a person to be met. And so when we think about the principles of care and extend them to the workplace is to say that first and foremost, we are all meaning-seeking creatures who have found our ways into structures called organisations that uh, often can strip us of our humanity, get us lost within frameworks of management, and we often collude in our own demise, whereas uh, a truly caring leadership culture and a truly caring workplace will always assert their humanity. As I think... um, how we do anything is how we do everything. And often in our Wayside Chapel is working in the caring uh, space in the not-for-profit charity sector is um, 
you know, we can often extend our philosophy saying, you know, we're here to care for the most vulnerable in our society. And at the same time, as we live that call out, we can often be quite um, uncaring towards our colleagues and those around us, you know, and uh, that, you know, if we have infinite love and compassion for those who who need our help in a weird way, to use that phrase, but um, then only infinite judgment for those around us, then, you know, we really run the risk of showing our true colours of being a bit of a phony. So many organisations uh, believe that love should stop at, at the front door, <laughs> uh, even not-for-profits. So and this is the antithesis to the kind of culture we're trying to create and the kind of world we're trying to create too, that, um, you know, we know that if every person who walks through our doors can really feel that uh, they're working in a loving and caring culture, uh, they will always, as we see in our surveys, report higher levels of satisfaction and teamwork and greater affection for colleagues, uh, which, you know what, means we perform better because we are a, we're a part of a tribe that's trying to change the world. So I love we're, that. Crea- we're created for connection, right? And uh, what that should extend into the places where we, most of us in our adult lives will spend more time than we often do some weeks or during the week, at least with our own families. One of the things that um, I think might be good to explain for people, especially those that aren't from Sydney or, or even from Australia, could you just give a quick overview of the amazing work that the Wayside Chapel does? Well, it, it all began in 1964 uh, when a, a bit of an iconic young minister kind of shut the doors on church convention and threw them open to the broader family of humanity, as he called them. And, you know, at that time, King's Cross was kind of, well, C- Sydney is an arrogant place, right? Let's be frank. And I've lived here most of my life, but I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, you know, we claim that we are the uh, the centre of Australia. And if if we do take that arrogant premise, which we should, uh, we would say that King's Cross is <laughs> the heart of Sydney as well. And so it's always held a, an iconic space in the place of uh, this state's heart. It's also the place that until very recently was the highest density of any population of our nation. It has a naval base at the bottom and a kind of ritzy uh, district at the top. So it's the place where, you know, we, we heroin first came into Australia, the drugs and heroin crisis of that time. And then the HIV epidemic really was centered around that King's Cross area and police corruption. It was <laughs> nightclubs and bohemians and hippies and, you know, <laughs> everything that was happening was always happening in the cross. And right in the middle of that was this young, this tiny little chapel that kept its lights on and its doors open and and, and went out saying we'll care for the family of humanity. And it's a, a place from which so much, not only love and care and compassion, but a place of social protest. Not We're never just content to say, look, you just get on with your business of living life. And if anyone doesn't fit into that mold, you know, we'll care for them. It's saying, you know, the truth about any society will always be found from the edges. And they always will give us a message that if we're bold enough, we will pay attention to, you know, so... We've um, so many iconic things have kind of been sparked from that place. The the freedom rides uh, with the Aboriginal community uh, left from the doorstep of Wayside Chapel. That uh, was a real seminal, pivotal moment in our understanding of our white and black uh, relations, particularly politically and and racially in our country. And uh, you know, Lifeline had its some very uh, fledgling beginnings here, then went off to Wesley Mission, where it really. Uh, 
began its journey, life education. You know, the joke is uh, if you've ever learned about drugs in the back of a of a caravan from a talking giraffe, that's a very Aussie experience. Right? <laughs> and so Healthy Harold began here because everything started from a reason saying, you know, of saying we opened the doors and people were dying in front of us as the drugs hit. Uh, heroin was brought up by the American military through the Vietnam War and all of a sudden we had people who were just zoning out and, and dying and overdosing as well. And so it was about based on the potential of humanity as well. And uh, the supervised injecting centre actually started uh, at Wayside as an act of civil disobedience because we're sick of opening our doors and picking up uh, dead bodies at the front. So it's always held a really edgy space in in people's hearts, and uh, we it's a it's a quite a daunting but beautiful legacy to continue to be a part of and to hopefully push forward uh, well beyond my time there. Yeah, yeah that uh, Ted Noss was certainly. Uh, a rebel, but an amazing man. And um, funnily enough, about almost 30 years ago, I was with a service group called Apex, and we had a, a national fundraising event for life education and Harold and donated the, you know, a nice chunk of money. Um, but then at the, at the same time, I was working for Johnson & Johnson, and Johnson & Johnson, through a bit of my lobbying, made life education, their major cause for mm. their children's area. And, and as a result, they do, donated $100,000, which is a lot in those days. So, yeah, that's how I've known Wayside Chapel through that real involvement. I know that um, life education has been separated now, and that makes sense. But what are the range of services that Wayside now offers? Yeah, so I always say to my team, you know, that the programs we run uh, are never permanent. <laughs> That's a good lesson for most nonprofits. Is we have these great front doors where we start everything, but we never actually evaluate them properly against our mission and our vision and where are we heading and does this still fit in with that? Unfortunately, we stay far too loyal <laughs> to uh, uh, we we do this because we've always done it. And you ask the question, well, why do we always do it? And they said, well, well, you know, Moira and uh, Murgatroyd started it in 1934, and you know, I think they're their second cousin twice removed who comes about once every 10 years would be really upset if we stopped doing it. <laughs> Just say, well, guys, you know, uh, we're not here to uh, be a – our places should be places of light and forward and, you know, any kind of health looks at our past and our heritage but also then looks forward at, to who we're becoming uh, as a way to honour who we were and who we are today. That's a long setup to say, right now, we're always at our best when we open the door, our, our doors and embrace everyone who walks through them. So we're seeing uh, a lot of people who are uh, still struggling with, particularly now with these difficult financial times, people who are at risk of homelessness, many who have been working their whole lives just very slowly and steadily at blue-collar jobs and all of a sudden they can't make ends meet. Their utilities have run out of control. Their rent's been increased and they're having to make some horrible decisions between do I hate or do I eat or do I – what if my kid has a medical and emergency? And, you know, so we're seeing a significant cohort of people come through who are very angry. Angry not with us but angry saying, I played by the rules, so why am I here? Yeah. Also, we're seeing a lot of um, – with the heightened increase in awareness of what family and domestic violence is and coercive control, we're seeing a lot more women starting to present at our centres. 
I've seen a lot of women and all often they have children with them. This sector is reeling and we're about to head into homelessness week uh, soon. And what we're going to see is a lot of media about how women and children don't really fit into many of the service models there. And the reason is this, is we've never before had to deal with it. You know, we've always assumed that rough sleeping and homelessness is is a male middle-aged to late-aged problem. Men who haven't grown up properly and ended up on their own uh, are the ones who front into our centres, but we're seeing a significant shift in demographic. In fact, the highest uh, represented cohort would be a woman in their in their sixties, mid mid sixties now, which is kind of terrifying. They're out. They're generally our our mums yeah. and our and our grandmas' ages who are coming here. So we we run services, a women's space there. We're running some work for men. Men's work is really needed at this moment. Mm. Uh, we're working with our community there. You know, it's the highest cohort of the people who are taking their own lives and. Uh, don't really know who to turn to through difficult times. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that um, for all the great advances that we're making in services to uh, ethnically and gender diverse and uh, cohorts of our community is um, men are struggling, struggling with identity. And if we're not there with them, they often will not only take it out on themselves, but their families and and communities. And we also do a lot of work just in, in creating community, building community and uh, helping people get on the journey of housing, health, uh, particularly working with a lot of rough sleepers. Um, you know, when you're on the streets, the the, the statistics about 80% of people have a, an issue with their mental health. But, you know, what we see is it's closer to 100%. You know, if even if, if you or I were to have to end up on the street tomorrow night, we'd be pretty anxious. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, to just to fall asleep, we may end up, you know, taking whatever we could find or afford, you know, maybe a couple of liters of cask wine, and uh, those things pretty quickly accelerate and exacerbate each other. And so, yeah, a lot of work there and helping people go on the housing journey, which is not as simple uh, as it seems, because at significant transition points, we often feel very lonely. Just think about it when you or I uh, move home or move state for work. You know, these transition points. Having a baby is also correlated with one of the times where you can be loneliest uh, in life because of, um, you know, the the sudden enormity of the task upon you. And, you know, it's often a full-time job to be a rough sleeper uh, Mm. just to find shelter and food, let alone having to attend to anything else you have to do there. So we walk with people, but we say we don't try and fix anyone. We don't tell anyone what they are to do and we say that everyone has a right to make any decision, even bad ones. And because I'm also a minister, I will say, you know, the greatest contribution we can make into people's life is grief and sadness. So I, I sometimes say to people, Graham, I say, I wish you could see what I see. I wish you could see the potential. But I also acknowledge that, you know, you're, you're being driven by self-hate from forces that were well beyond your control. And uh, But just let me tell you, I, I love you. And if you continue to go down that path, I'll... I'll give you a great funeral and I, I promise I'll weep at your funeral as well. But man, I wish you could just wake up to your potentiality. And, you know, I, it's not a rehearsed speech, but uh, I've, I've given it a few times and I've done a f- more funerals than I haven't. But I've also, uh, I've, I've seen some amazing resurrections, if we want to say, <laughs> yeah. through that time. As I understand it, you grew up in a, 
a Malaysian family, recently arrived in Australia. And as I read it, your mother and father hoped to become a, a doctor or at least a, a lawyer. You were studying computer science and you just dropped out. And as I understand it, to help in the community. How did you go from that to being CEO of the Wayside Chapel? Well, if there's any theme that's really apparent in my life, it's uh, you could call it the I'm the accidental leader. Um, <laughs> you know, the, you're right there. I was uh, heading into my final year of university studying a computer science and electrical engineering degree. Um, I often say that the uh, my favourite my my favourite day of university was my first day there. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, it was the day I found out what course my mother had enrolled me into. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, most people laugh because they think I'm joking. Right. Whereas if you're from a, the only son of an Asian family of migrants, um, you'll know that truth, that terrifying reality of it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I had a year to go and I wasn't happy. Um, you know, I, I knew I had the competence and the skills to finish this course and to get a job and to probably do pretty good enough to care for families. But, you know, I was lying awake at night thinking, oh, there's, there's got to be more to life than this, right? Is, is that it? Is that the point of existence? Well, you know, I know I can do it, but it's certainly not my purpose or reason for being on this, this planet. And uh, back in the 90s, that's when it was, yeah, campus life was pretty vibrant because we didn't have mobile phones. <laughs> so uh, at lunchtime, we sat around and chatted, but then the university would put bands on or sometimes there'd be debates in the amphitheater and public forums and or a soapbox you could get up and say whatever you wanted and this one gentleman uh stood up and he he basically said hey everyone guess what you're at melbourne university congratulations you are you're not going to be you are already in the top one percent of people who have existed in world history right in terms of advantage and privilege and he said you're on a path and you're gonna have to fight hard to fall off these rails." <laughs> And he said it pretty bluntly. He said, how about you take one year out of your selfish lives and, <laughs> and go off and volunteer somewhere and then come back and pick up your selfish life where you left off, right? But, you know, what's the worst case scenario at the end of this is you would have done something good for a year. And I thought, I'm in. Where do I sign up? And so uh, a few other people went and signed up and to that and uh, they all wanted to go off to uh, – I don't know, to Africa or something and get a photo with a, a beautifully brown-coloured baby or something. And I thought, no, no, I'm already brown and my children will most likely be brown if I have them. And so I want to hold a white snotty baby. So I went out to um, uh, just down the road, actually, and from where I grew up and to a community that, um, you know, was struggling, a lower socioeconomic community, had a lot of uh, intergenerational trauma and disadvantage in it, drug use, gangs, uh, you know, it was suffering from a lot of um, the resources and the supports required weren't necessarily being put into place in this neighbourhood and the policing was pretty out of control too. So, you know, I, I signed up to do a two-week kind of volunteer course with this group and uh, never looked back, you know. I Two weeks turned into a one-year commitment, turned into a 20-year kind of whirlwind that uh, as it was getting up to 20 years, um, where Lisa and I, we threw open our home and were taking in people who were on the streets and that looked like in the first few years of our marriage before kids, we taking people, men in who were seeking asylum. Then we had a, some kids and who, we had all girls and so we started taking in women 
off the streets in our little flat and and then uh, as our kids grew, it became, you know, t- taking a lot of their friends in or teenagers later on and to the point where at the end we were taking in a lot of kids trying to finish their HSC who were being kicked out of home. And you only really know that reality once you've had kids in HSC yourself and you realise it's a bit of a tinderbox <laughs> at times. And so, and then, you know, it was going, wow, this is intense. And our kids, you know, at some point looked at us and said, um, you know, uh, we didn't have a choice in this. Uh, you know, do we get a bit of a say now that we're getting a bit older? We wouldn't mind having to, a bit of a quieter place to uh, care for, uh, to do our homework and uh, to study, which, you know, they were very clever and manipulative because they knew my Asian heart would say, yes, you need to study more. And also, you know, I'm a raging extrovert and one of my kids is a high introvert. And so it was a, a good chance for her to have a little break. And, you know, as things w- would happen is Lisa and I are saying, yeah, look, this is something we need to contemplate. And that correlated with one of our kids really having struggles with their own mental health. Mm. And uh, that led to a pretty dark little season for us as a family that we are, uh, you know, we're, we're working through. And mm. um, uh, then so we thought, yeah, now it's time to kind of create a bit more of a safe and predictable environment. And then, you know, we made the decision on a Tuesday. We we're going to announce at the national team meeting on the Friday. Uh, we hadn't told anyone. And on the Wednesday, my phone rang in between the Tuesday and the Friday. And it was the CEO of the Wayside saying, mates, um, the board are going to begin my um, search for my replacement. I'd love for you to consider putting your hat in the ring. I said, wow, you know, that's unheard of that you know the way the universe could operate in that way and so we did threw my hat in the ring and we had this cunning got the job as the assistant uh we had a five-year cunning plan mapped out on how i'd take over transition slowly under his leadership and then um i got there and about three months into being there he got prostate cancer and the board panicked a bit brought forward his uh the recruitment to replace him. And all of a sudden I found myself after six months having to apply for a, a CEO job of an organization of about 150 with about um, 10 to $15 million a year budget at the time. And uh, when all I'd done was lead a small team with a about a $400,000 a year budget there as well. So, you know, it was quite the leap, but um, something that's always driven me as a young kid, I, I grew up going to church and uh, I remember sitting through so many talks, you know, they're called sermons and just thinking, oh my goodness, like you've got our undivided attention for about 20 minutes to half an hour every week. You've got a a real privileged platform to change our lives and you just bump for it every week. (laughs) So I always thought if I ever speak to people in public, I'm going to make sure that I don't waste that time, you know. So I was always driven by this thing of, yeah, you know, if not me, then who? And so when I I saw how precious and unique everything that was happening at Wayside, its mission of creating community with no us and them, the power of healing that can happen when people find themselves caught up in a place where they're not being worked on and they're not being judged and they're just being loved. And I thought, wow, this is too precious to leave to chance, you know, if if not me then who so you know that was the the conviction i took into um uh putting my hand up and you know the steve bradbury kind of leadership i looked around (laughs) and there i was you know all of a sudden in the lead 
It is a, a huge leap, though, you know, from being a team manager to suddenly overseeing the whole thing, the finances, the operations, 700 volunteers, 100-plus staff. Mm. Did you feel anxious any any time when you contemplated what to do next? Oh, you know, officially I'd say never, but uh, reality was the moment I got the job was the moment I stopped sleeping a full night. <laughs> it was the unknown unknowns that keep you awake at night. You know, what am I missing here and how do I walk into a place where with such a heritage of beautiful, strong leaders and people who are loved and uh, revered and, you know, their, their legacy only grows with time. And, you know, the last guy had been there 15 years and was quite um, close to retirement age when he when he finished up. So everyone kind of looked to him as a, as a grandfather kind of figure. And here I was half his age stepping into the organisation, you know, and I think they used to call him grandpa at the end. That's how loved he was. And grandpa would always um, just, you know, he'd referee any disputes that were going on and make sure all these grandkids loved each other at the end. And all of a sudden I thought, I'm not a grandpa. In fact, I'm, <laughs> older, I'm older than half of you here. Like I need a new metaphor and a new story through which to be able to lead this organisation. Um, so what guides you each week, you know, as you try to contemplate the priorities ahead. How do you sort that out? Look, one of the best things uh, that ever happened, I've got a very uh, supportive board who have acknowledged that I had a big uh, learning curve to go on when it came to leadership and executive leadership and organisational leadership. And so through the development of a, you know, I was getting finding my feet in the first 18 months and just when I had worked out what was going to the next few years is going to look like we we experienced lockdown through COVID. And so that really was a, a different set of learnings, uh, a different set of challenges. And so we kind of just rose to that challenge. We were fortunate enough through that time also to do some work on our, our strategy and looking at where we we're heading for the next 10 years and we're able to restructure through that time uh, to be able to bring in the right supports and the the right people who could kind of take these dreams and, and put some legs on them. So I'm a, a, I'm a bit of a raging extrovert. And the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP, a raging E. I'm also on the Enneagram, a, um, a seven, which is a, a scale that if you haven't heard of, it's a, it's a fun little tool to diagnose yourself because it doesn't tell you what you're great at. It tells you your deepest, darkest dysfunctions, <laughs> which is, um, you know, I'm head in the clouds with the feet not on the ground. You know, <laughs> I think the this, this seven is called the dreamer, but it's also called the need to avoid pain. And that's a long way, Graham, sorry, of, of setting up that um, I, I love having these dreams and these pictures of what the future could be like. And they're often dreamed up with others and as a community. It's, uh, then I have these beautiful, passionate team members saying, okay, let's go from A to Z, but what? how do we get to B? And C and D, and I'm like, what? No, you worked that out. So, bringing in some general ma- a general manager who has just stuck by me through thick and thin. You know, we're we're great mates, and she's um she's she's the one who knows how to get the right work plan through to be able to make sure that our dreams become a reality. And we bring people in a change management way along the way, capturing their hearts and minds. You know, if we don't move, the risk is that 
I think human nature is to always look backwards and use their memory of the past as a marker of the state that we're in currently. And it, and as a backwards focus, they're always saying, "Oh, you know, oh, we're changing, and it's and none of it's good." And you know, it's if we can only get back to what we once were. And you know, I've, I was kind of hoping that lockdowns and COVID would disabuse us of the notion that there was a golden past. It's um, you know, it, it, leading there requires a lot of forgiveness, as um, Aboriginal elder and friend of mine, Uncle Ray Minikin, said. Forgiveness is the hope of giving up, of having a better past. (laughs) And so, and helping people be captured by the picture and the possibilities of who we might be and how we might be there for the future. So our programs will always change, but our heart will always remain the same. So we're currently seeing a lot of people who, from the queer community and transgender community, who um, are coming to us for some care and some love through this time who are finding, you know, as the conversations in the broader society kind of roll around about them, no one's really loving uh, loving them and uh, the Aboriginal community as well, particularly at this time. You know, a bit like the plebiscite into gay marriage, people mistook that for permission to express out loud their opinions about the queer community in quite harmful ways. I think many people have misread this upcoming referendum as an opportunity that they feel like they've been given tacit approval to suddenly voice some incredibly hopeful and um, often deeply untested racist comments that, uh, you know, I know a few people who, through the plebiscite, uh, who are members, proud members of the queer community were against it. And then when the vote came through, they, a few of them said to me, oh, you know, the reason we were saying let's vote no is I was trying to self-protect, mm. you know, through that time. And and I'm a couple of very good friends in the Aboriginal community who are currently have changed from the yes to the no. And when I really ask them what's going on, they're saying pretty much the same. I'm trying to self-protect. Like you don't know what it's like and I don't know what it's like to be an Aboriginal person growing up at this time with the history that we have of dispossession in our country. and to hear these talking and these opinions going on about you and to offer something up in such hope. I mean, it's a beautiful statement that we're being asked to to um, think through and read through and, and evoke in harmony with. But, you know, it's incredibly, you know, vulnerability comes with that, that picture of the future. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. First resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. Care is a very deep part of who you are and the culture you're trying to create. Do you ever experience care fatigue? Uh, that's a that's a good question. I I I don't actually. <laughs> Sorry to say that because um, I recently, over the last few years, so the 
with our, our child really beginning to go downhill and struggle. Yeah. I'll, I'll share a few stories actually, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Cool. You know, there's a very little known story about the, the founder of, of Wayside. He's, he's well known. He's well revered, amazing man and a, a real enigma of a person actually. And, you know, he, when he was at the height of his leadership strength, he was, uh, off on a air trip to visit the Queen and visit Prince Charles to make life education go international. He suffered a massive stroke on that flight from which he never recovered. And he um he died eight years later, but he was he was bedridden and cared for by Margaret, his wife, and um very incapacitated. And he could only say he could only say two words that whole time. And he would say to anyone who came to visit him, he would use his, the little strength he had in one hand and he would grab them and he would say it over and over. And the two words were, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. Well, I say he's an enigma. He did so much good and we don't, what was he saying sorry for? Or were they the only words he could say? But, you know, the, for me, the picture is if you are someone who is called into the position to lead, you're being called to not only cast a collective picture of what the future could be, you're asking to invite people along that way with you, which means you're going to hurt people along the way, you know, and sometimes you're going to have to deconstruct uh, old ways of working and moving that uh, people are very embedded with and care for, and, and you're going to break their hearts along the way. And so I take that story as something that really grounds me in humility to realise no matter how Whatever I'm doing, no matter how good it is and no matter what I could ever look back on and say, look at what we've achieved together, is there's always going to be an element of sadness and grief. And I will spend the last five, 10 years of my life saying I'm sorry. Mm. I'm sorry to people. And so that really holds me in a good place there. It also grounds me in a space where I realise I, I have the privilege of, of being in a most wonderful and diverse community of love and acceptance, something I've craved. Uh, my whole life growing up as a migrant coloured person in a country and a culture that um, just couldn't find ways to accept me for who I was and had to box me. And it's a very common experience for us all, I'm sure. And, um, you know, that's also I, with our child struggling, is um, we invested heavily in some therapy for us all and family therapy and I'm constantly working uh, with a therapist and a, a clinical psychologist and a, a treating team doing the work. A commitment to changing the world should, if it's not to veer off and to become unhealthy, always grow and be accompanied by a commitment to doing the work. So often out of blind, unbridled uh, passion, we change the world, but we do too much damage along the way. And we're far more driven by our demons than we are by any sense of generativity. Always go with the energy. So myself, I would always say my best staff have lived experience. Mm. My worst staff also have lived experience. <laughs> Why is it both? My best staff with lived experience are the ones that do the work. So they're committed to breaking those cycles. Mm. See, the ones, my worst staff have lived experience and are committed to doing the work. Mm. So they will say things like, I was neglected as a child. So I'm just going to be there for everyone. What do they do? 
They take on too many commitments. They never say no. Um, you know, they ignore me when I say that someone's lack of planning doesn't constitute their emergency. They need to rescue and save and fix. And um, and all of a sudden, what do they do with all these relationships? They burn out and they drop them. Mm. And they've just replicated that cycle of abandonment mm. that they said was their mission to end. Mm. Whereas my good workers, they do the work. Mm. They know they can't take on everyone. They know they need to constantly be unwrapping the interactions and actions through the days and weeks and months that weigh heavily upon them and prevent them from being generative. Mm. And so it's my responsibility and my honour as a leader to be able to provide an everyone access to the right supports they need to go on that journey of generativity to mm. be able to develop not only their professional skills but who they are as a human being which impacts all areas of their life as well yeah that makes sense yeah 100 percent. and I, yeah. I love that term do the work because i remember reading about the the um comedian Jerry Seinfeld and his iconic show. And mm-hmm. he was always asked by, you know, new aspiring comedians, what's the secret? How do you do it? And that was his response. Do the work. You know, you write jokes every day. You, If you write a whole lot of bad jokes, you'll find a good one somewhere in there. But uh, the only way to grow and evolve is to is to do the work. And it, it applies to all of us in this time in particular. You know, we've been through these last three years and and all the research shows that it's been really really challenging and it's still going on it's still happening um there was a report that came out from deloitte just back in june 2023 and they basically showed that half the people were often or always feeling overwhelmed stressed and anxious and uh so when that sort of cycle is going on we do have a responsibility to do the things that help us. And, uh, you know, one of my favourite mantras when I present is that self-care isn't selfish. You know, you, you can't help others if you're not in good shape yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I learnt the very hard way about that. I went through a horrendous uh, five-year episode of depression when I was out of work for five years. But it's funny now, I, I do see it not as... Um, a traumatic time, although it was at the time, but it really forced me to reevaluate my priorities and my values and and strengthen relationships around me. And I know that I had that vulnerability to go back again. And so that's why I am really uh, very disciplined about doing the things that, um, you know, keep me well, but also those around me well. Mm. You, you can really tell someone who's doing the work because uh, particularly in our arena, we're, we're right on the front line of where uh, – where a lot of the pain and suffering of this world and, and our city resides. And so that's going to leave a mark. It's mm. going to open wounds that we have. You know, I can sit through certain types of conversations and interactions with people and, you know, it's fine. It doesn't, it doesn't hit me deeply. But then others, mm. you know, we, we all have our little um, trigger points that we really need to be aware of, you know, otherwise we'll quickly get into compensatory behaviours uh, unhealthy ways of being able to process them and, you know, it, it can quickly spiral and uh, that can lead to a pretty uh, unhealthy person as well as workplace as well. Yeah. yeah. It's important. What do you do for your own self-care? How do you keep your fuel, your tank full with fuel? 
Yeah, it's a great question, actually. <laughs> Look, you know, as we go on this journey of life, I've had the benefit of having some great mentors and coaches in my life along the way who have journeyed with me for decades and decades and decades. And one of them helped me um, identify, you know, what are some of the markers of health for me? So whenever we catch up, which we've been catching up for nearly three decades now, he'll ask me, are you doing this, this, and this? And so for me, it is, am I, um, am I reading for pleasure? That's one of the things that, uh, you know, if I'm just reading for functionality and for work, um, that's not a marker of health. One for me is, do I just pick up a book and just read it uh, for the sheer joy of it? The other one is, am I eating properly? You know, I, I um, had a really difficult day with two or three things that can always trigger me, kind of came up on the one day. And uh, I was driving home and next thing you know, I went into a haze and I rolled up into our driveway and I had an empty bucket of KFC on my lap. <laughs> and Lisa just happened to be out the front. And as I rolled up and there was just grease and chicken and fat all over me and she said, oh, tough day, love. <laughs> so am I eating properly? Am I uh, breathing and meditating uh, and exercising? You know, these are important things for me. Am I spending time with my family regularly as well? Um, for me, meditating and breathing, look, okay, here's where I'm going to rip the lid off who I am, is one is I'm a minister, right? I don't sit there and, you know, say my prayers in the same way that many would assume they would. I, um, For me, meditating is, and I'm Indian as well, I can't go to yoga because I just am, ter- one, I'm terrible at it, I'm very inflexible, which is such a metaphor. Um, but to being Indian, I can't deal with some 19-year-old, you know, someone named Kelsey from Cool and Gatta who starts quoting some Indian scripture to me. I just, I just, I can't, <laughs> I can't cope, right? I just, you know, please. By the way, you know, as I get closer to 50, which is very close, there's a, I don't want a 19-year-old to tell me that I can do that stretch, you know, <laughs> you know? Like, please, you know, you, there's so for me, meditating is getting my heart rate up to a level where I can think about nothing else other than survival through breathing. Mm. I love being able to run, mm. and I'm very fortunate in that you know, I started running at the time where the technology improvements in shoes is good, and so I invest in a good pair of shoes. That's part of my self care. Is um making sure I've got a good pair of runners and so I can just hit the pavement mm-hmm. and just get to that point where it's just I clear everything out. Often, you know, I think with Eckhart Tolle talking about 98% of all human thought is repetitive and useless is we run those cycles through and we, we're really good at running the doom loops mm-hmm. that quickly become shame storms. And I'm fortunate enough, if I can just create a little break like, like that mm-hmm. in it, I can begin to once again notice that I'm running along the Cooks River in Sydney and there's birds chirping and the sun is shining and it brings me back into relationship with the universe instead of just the relationship I'm having with this thought spiral, which is unfortunately when it's unchecked, complete and utter agreement with the doom loop, right? (laughs) You know, it's crazy, right? Why do we do it? Oh, yeah, yeah. That little voice in my head is always telling the truth. It's lying to me so often. It's telling me how bad others are, how good I am, or how terrible I am. Yeah. You know, within, often within a breath. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, keep preaching it, bro. <laughs> it's like, come on. 
my uh, wife, um, she loves to run on trails and it's it's her meditation as well. And she's had a, a knee injury really for the last year. It's been very, very challenging, you know, not mm. being able to do that because that's also how she truly turned off and, uh, you know, just was totally in the present moment. So it is um, difficult. I, I call those things your one thing. And, you know, for some people it is running, for some people it's meditating, for some people it's cooking or whatever. But when you're fully present and you're enjoying that outcome, it's, mm. um, it's what, what is unique to each of us, but we also need to honour it. You know, if it's something that's really important to us, it's really important to, to do it because uh, if you don't, you know, you, you're hurting yourself. Yeah, and so I, um, um, I'm a bit sad that it, for me it's running, right, because I'm like, oh, how long can you run for? You know, <laughs> there's a... There's a uh, there's an expiry date on running, so it is getting significantly slower as I get older. But um, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. But hopefully, another practice will will find its way into my heart. That it has to be linked to body, because I have always run the risk of becoming incredibly disembodied and not paying attention to um, where pain is, where my body is trying to send me alerts. And if I don't do that, I'll get sick i don't get sick very often but when i get sick i get sick mm. you know mm. yeah the world is changing really really quickly and you know i'm sure your community is changing very quickly do you consciously try to learn new things to be ready for that how how do you keep yourself relevant and vital and present mm. and and in that moment I think we've all got a responsibility as leaders to, and leadership isn't just a position. It's something that's applicable to all of us in our lives, no matter where we are. We all have the opportunity to influence those around us for the better. We always have a responsibility to, one, to step back from ourselves. And we've just discussed that in some of the practices that we all can make. Um, We all have a responsibility to learn. Uh, There's so much great literature out there. In fact, I know I'm not doing well is when I, I, I'm not reading for pleasure. And often I'm not just reading literature and novels. I'm reading, you know, I watch a TED talk and I'll read their book and try and, you know, analyze it. And, and the more you get into it, you know, I think Adam Grant recently said, you're not developed enough if you find yourself just agreeing with the last thing you read all the time. You know, <laughs> we need to, we need to just develop that critical mind where we can continue to, to work out what's happening in the world, how we can, be of service to it, you know, how to breathe with what's going on. One of my favourite quotes is from my favourite author in the world is Arundhati Roy. A new world is on her way and on a quiet morning I can hear her breathe. Mm. And so often, so for me, any practice I have or anything I do is to try around centering or spirituality is to try and listen for the heartbeat of this earth and mm. say, how can I be of service to it instead of imposing my will on it? That's my metaphor mm. for leading. I don't like to be thought of as an inspirational leader. I'd rather much be thought of as a conspirational leader. Inspiration is breathing in, <laughs> uh, but conspirational is to breathe with. How do we create a community of people that can breathe with what's going on in this world that can acknowledge that, you know, that breath is the cycle of life, which is we we take in this beautiful life-giving oxygen and we breathe out death, which is that carbon dioxide that we can't have in our bodies for too long. Mm-hmm. You know? So how do we how do we do that? How do we develop that as a, a stance and approach 
to life is a, yeah. is a real joy and a challenge. And that's where you've got to keep reading, learning, growing. But also just being with people yeah. is a great way of breaking out of our bubbles and our shells. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, you know, I'm not sure if I quite believe in a literal hell, and I say that as a minister, but, you know, I think there's a few versions of hell. One's probably a strata meeting. Um, <laughs> the, the other one, a, a nonstop strata meeting. Uh, the other one is probably to be surrounded by people who all look like you and hold the same opinions as yourself. Mm. Can you imagine where you end up? You know, you would only, from that position, you would look out on the world and say, ah, they could only be more like us. You know, how do we make ourselves great again? You know, by getting rid of the other, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I love that uh, on a daily basis, you know, I'm confronted by a difference and challenged to be a better human being. Mm. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure to catch up today, John. I've really enjoyed our chat so much. I always end by asking my guests, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Knowing what you know now as approaching 50 and all your experiences, mm. what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? I'd, I'd say to my 18-year-old self is um, blonde tips are not a good idea. Right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, I would say just chill, bro. You're going you're gonna to get most things right and you're going to do all right in the things that matter. Uh, you're going to make a bunch of mistakes along the way, but, you know, all things will work together for good. Excellent. That's a, that's a wonderful way to finish. Thanks so much for being part of the Caring CEO, John. Thanks, Graham. We've got, certainly gone all over the shop, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.